my name is Kara Kovac from SolveCast. I'm being joined here with Cynthia Fishman, the director and founder of the Biomimicry Design Alliance. We're going to be talking about a super exciting subject today. So Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to uh, talk about biomimicry. <laughs> Wonderful. So can we first start off because not, not everyone knows what biomimicry is even in the design spaces. Can you just describe a bit of, of what it is exactly? Yeah, sure. So biomimicry is when humans look to nature um, from a functional perspective in order to solve design challenges. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with architecture, even though that's what I specialize in, but it can also be applied to engineering and medicine and transportation and even social interaction of, you know, studying how social insects have their own forms of democracy. And it would be amazing if like our politicians actually you know, utilize those skills as well. But yeah, it's really mostly based about the function. So it's seeing how nature solved a design challenge and then kind of reframing the question of, you know, how one goes about design. Because normally with humans, like as a species, we are very much focused on what the end result will be, what the actual object is. But when you're asking for nature's health, you need to reframe that question to ask what you want your design to actually do. And by switching that, you can ask nature for help. Nature has these tried and true methods of being sustainable and being resilient and fitting in in this environment and has billions of years of experience doing it. So it's kind of like a very broad definition of biomimicry, which still sometimes gets a little confusing, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. <laughs> and so I know that because you said that biomimicry touches on a lot of subjects. You, you mentioned architecture, you mentioned uh, medical situations. Can you give an example of a specific, maybe a product, an example product that has used biomimicry and maybe the kind of like natural process it was emulating? Yeah, sure. So in terms of product design, probably the most famous of all biomedic products um, is based on a burr pod. And in 1941, the Swiss engineer named George Damastrel was going for a hike with his dog and the dog was covered with these burr seeds and he, or burr pods rather, and he looked at it under a microscope, saw that it, these pods had these little hooks on it. And what those hooks did was allow these seed pods to attach temporarily. So that's a function of them. So they attach temporarily to other animals or other things that are moving near these seeds and the pods just attach to it. And then it's a really ingenious way of getting these seeds to spread out as far as possible using the least amount of energy. So Demonstral was looking into this about how the functional form of this seed pod actually worked and he created Velcro based on it. So it's all that having like one side that has these little hooks and another side that has something soft and it attaches temporarily um, and can be used over and over again. So that's an example in product design that's probably ubiquitous. Like everyone knows what Velcro is and most people have, have it on themselves somewhere. In terms of like the medical field, we can look to see how mosquitoes actually draw blood from their prey and make more efficient and better shaped needles that aren't as painful or even looking at how to do um, stitches in terms of making something biodegradable that can be created in water or, you know, some kind of liquid and not harm what, what's being used. So there's really endless amount of mentors that are out there in the natural world. Well, that's super exciting. I think we kind of like, we kind of don't uh, fully appreciate all of the kind of the, how nature has already influenced our design processes, which is a really great thing about biomimicry. And so you've, you've touched on it already a bit, but 
in sustainability conversations, we often get asked, like, why should we be caring about this? So why do you think we should be caring about biomimicry? Well, biomimicry is not only about emulating these like functional designs from nature. There's actually three, they're called essential elements that are that make up biomimicry and they're all really important. And so it's not just this sustainability metric of a checklist and actually biomimicry doesn't have a checklist really in terms of creating something sustainable or resilient. And these other essential elements are reconnecting with the natural world. I, I feel like after COVID, this, who knows what the statistic is, but before COVID it was that humans spend like 90% of their lives indoors and we're not meant be in front of a screen hunched over either a computer or like a phone or whatever. So just reconnecting with the natural world is a huge component of biomimicry. And then the other essential element is more of a philosophical ethical component of trying to refocus how humans interact with the natural world and all the other species, as well as other humans, to be more empathetic and to realize that there is an intrinsic value to all other organisms and that it's not just looking at a tree being like, wow, that's going to make some great pieces of paper. I can't wait to cut that down. That the tree you know, has a right to live and do what it's doing in and of itself without this external validation or you know, external value placed upon it by humans. So in terms of how biomimicry kind of fits into the sustainability mindset, it's just, it's so complex and that it's not really just looking at it from this human perspective of how we perceive sustainability in order to make humans not you know live on this planet but it's how how we fit into the whole ecosystem of the planet because we're all connected and a lot of times with our sustainability it's very much isolated and siloed of like I'm going to with architecture I'm going to create this very sustainable building but who cares what's happening around it but with biomimicry you're really looking at the whole process because with nature there is no waste so that, that's another huge one. And I know like circular economy and cradle to cradle are definitely some terms that are used in the sustainable dialogue right now. But nature, that's just baked into how nature does things because everything that's an output is some other organism's input. So we could learn so much utilizing this design lens of biomimicry to see how nature is just intrinsically sustainable. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, for, for our listeners kind of like listening to this, that a big challenge with a lot of our industries, whether that be the energy industry, whether that be with our buildings, there's always been this struggle with how do we cooperate with nature? How do we how do we work with it instead of against it? And I think that biomimicry is a wonderful lesson and how and how to go about doing. It. And I would really love to hear what how did you get initially interested in biomimicry? Gotcha. So yeah, I have been interested in sustainability and the environment ever since I was a like, very little kid, like in elementary school. And that's always just kind of been an interest of mine. And I you know, definitely think that I'm whole brained and that I really, really, really love math and science, but I also have this creative side. And that is what propelled me into the field of architecture of going originally going to school for architecture and then becoming licensed and, you know, practicing in the field. Um, but with architecture, just it, it's very creative and it is very technical, but it doesn't have that kind of science aspect. So it's always kind of missing something. And during undergrad in architecture school, I read about lots of different sustainability um, methodologies and went to all these lectures and read books. And biomimicry was one of them, but it was just kind of one of many. And it really wasn't until um, 2014 that I went to a lecture at the University of Colorado Denver um, by Michael Pollan 
who is like, is, is a very famous, like biomedic architect. And he kind of reminded me of like, oh yeah, this is why I wanted to be an architect and why I want to do sustainability. And it just kind of combined all my interests of I get to geek out about all these like amazing organisms and their superpowers and how they solve challenges in such an ingenious way. And once you learn about it, it's just like, yeah, that's so obvious. Like, why didn't we think of that? And then, so that kind of propelled me, made me actually like pivot in terms of my career, as opposed to just pursuing a more traditional architecture trajectory to actually go back and get a master's of science in biomimicry and then eventually start Biomimicry Design Alliance, my, my firm, which I started in 2018. So it's really just kind of the, like, the experience of like being out there and talking to people and networking and like being going to this lecture, just who would have thought that it would have really like changed my life and just kind of reminded me of something I always knew, but kind of forgot. So hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> no, it does. And I'd love to hear more about the work that Biomimicry Design Alliance does specifically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as I said, with biomimicry can be applied to so many different disciplines, but with my background, um, Biomimicry Design Alliance or BDA, because it's such a mouthful, really focuses on the built environment. So we have four different areas that we focus on, one being consulting. So we work with architects or directly with the clients in order to incorporate nature strategies into their designs, because it's not only more efficient and usually more beautiful and all these other things, it also ends up saving money and can just has this really great backstory in terms of marketing of instead of just having a structure that all these components within it actually are based on something else. And it just adds this whole other layer of depth to the design and creates more educational opportunities. So we focus on consulting. Then we also do product design. So we have a patent pending acoustic lab that's based on a specific type of moth and it helps mitigate sound just based on the geometry as opposed to material properties. So that's one product that we're working on. Education is is huge because as you said earlier, like that a lot of people don't necessarily know what biomimicry is or even if they know it, it kind of gets confused with all these other bio words. So I do a lot of workshops and lectures and I also teach at University of Colorado Denver and just kind of getting the word out there of what is biomimicry. And then the fourth area of focus is our own um, unique research. So we have two different research projects going on right now. One is called for this tool that's specifically for architects and designers. It's called Inspired. I mean, it's spelled E-N-S-P-R-D. I'm all about the acronyms. Um, and that stands for Employing Nature's Solutions to Produce Responsible Designs. And what this tool is, you'll be able to put in the location of where your building is and what function you want to solve. And it'll give you organisms that have already learned to solve that challenge and then also and do all the biomimicry for you, give you a conceptual conceptual rendering and performance metrics. Because with biomimicry being kind of relatively new, if you don't have a background in biology or sciences or trained in biomimicry, it's really hard to incorporate biomimicry on your own. So the hope is with the Inspire platform is that it'll put that information into the hands of people, even if they don't have that back. And we were fortunate enough to get a National Science Foundation grant last year to work on that research. And then the second project we're working on is called TerraLoop. And it, it, it plugs into that whole circular economy, no waste mentality. So TerraLoop is based in the Denver metro area. And we're creating this digital ecosystem where it's kind of like Craigslist meets Match.com, where businesses would be able to put in what their... Um, outputs are or what they used to consider waste and it'll 
list them and then other businesses will be like, oh yeah, I could actually use that in my business or I could, I know what to do with that or it doesn't have to go into the landfill. So it's all about giving enough, like another life to these materials as opposed to them just ending up in the landfill and creating this community of like-minded individuals. So we're just finishing up our focus group. I believe we have 21 businesses in the Denver metro area who are helping us kind of work through this. And we're working with an amazing startup out of Houston, Texas called Humanity that's creating this app for us. So those are kind of our two big projects in terms of research that we're working on. And so when you're working with clients, what is what is one of the what are the, what is an example of the difficulties or challenges they go through when trying to incorporate, you know, biomimicry into their work? Well, definitely the the scientific knowledge is definitely a barrier because as architects, we're just not taught that. And also a lot of the amazing scientific data that's already out there that researchers have done, it either doesn't get published or even if it does get published, it kind of just lives in this world of scientific journals that are really difficult to access for someone who doesn't subscribe to that journal or doesn't have access to an academic library. So knowledge is definitely one of the barriers. Another one is that even though nature has been around for 3.8 billion years solving these design challenges, we don't have a ton of built like architectural projects to use as examples. So in order to show clients and consultants of, yeah, this is what we could do. It's not that there's this huge portfolio of, you know, previous examples. So it's not necessarily that the discipline is completely risk averse, but there's so much that goes into architecture, especially the like health, safety, and welfare of the users of the building. But to use something so innovative and kind of new that even though it's been tested by other organisms, hasn't necessarily been tested by humans in the built environment. That definitely is another barrier to incorporating biomimicry is just having having someone who understands what what the big picture is and having faith in in the brilliance of nature. (laughs) And so what would you say the Biomimicry Design Alliance is solving for? So we're really, our aim is to make biomimicry accessible to the design community just because it's not. And what we're really trying to solve for is to be another another tool to help mitigate the climate crisis with all the different environmental issues that are going on. Like we, it's really all hands on deck. Like we need as many tools as possible in order to humans adapt and evolve into this new planet, whether or not one believes in climate change or not, like you could definitely see that, you know, there are different weather patterns that the shore, like that there's sunny day flooding where there's just so much volume in the ocean that the shoreline is moving in and flooding infrastructure. And especially states like Florida, they're just so close to this like sea level that they're getting inundated with water. So BDA and biomimicry in general is to just really help, you know, the People who are affected by these things have other opportunities to solve these challenges in a sustainable way. And do you notice that there are financial benefits that businesses can see from incorporating into whether it's their buildings or their products? Oh, definitely. I mean, with with biomimicry, it very much is all about the triple bottom line of people, planets and profit. But you know, just looking at the profit component, um, probably the poster child for biomimetic architecture is the Eastgate Center in Zimbabwe that was done by architect Nick Pierce. 
And with that building, he looked to termites in order to figure out a way to regulate temperature or cool the buildings and extremely you know, warm in that climate. And that project, when it's that building, it's a 330,000 square foot office building and utilizing the, the methods of the specific species of termite, they're able to use, I think it's like when it's passively cooled, it's 10% of the energy that it takes a traditional building to cool. And even when it's using, you know, actively cooled principles, it's using 35% less energy just by redesigning and really thinking about airflow. So by having this new kind of design for this building, the architect was able to save the client $3.5 million on HVAC costs just because it didn't need that traditional air conditioning system that is extremely expensive. So a lot of times with with pretty much any kind of sustainability design lens, it's looking at things more on the long term that it might cost either the same or more in the beginning. But when you're looking at the bigger picture, it's definitely economic and financial benefits. So it's just a matter of finding like clients and projects that aren't building it day one and selling it day two. So they don't really care about the the long term effects. And an HVAC is one of the highest consuming sources of energy in a building. So that's, I think people don't understand just how, how consuming that is. So that's very, very significant. And how does, so just going to a, a little more technical level, how does, how does biomimicry go beyond just typical, like sustainable or lead design? Because someone might look at a lead building and go, oh, that looks pretty like environmental to me. So how does it kind of go a step beyond that? Gotcha. So yeah, with biomimicry, since it is all about reframing that question and looking at the function of things, it's not, it's a different way of approaching sustainability because you don't necessarily get a plaque at the end. Um, and there, you know, aren't a million forms you need to fill out with leads. So in terms of it being more environmentally friendly, as opposed to other design mes- metrics, it's kind of, it's a little more holistic in kind of its overall approach, but then the outcomes definitely show savings and beauty and efficiency and all that kind of stuff. So it's not not saying that like lead and the other kind of sustainability metrics are just about the numbers, but that having quantifiable metrics are, are a very easy way to determine sustainability, where kind of the bigger picture with biomimicry and also with biophilia, which is, you know, related to biomimicry, but different in that it's incorporated, it's bringing the outdoors indoors. And there's so many other benefits in terms of worker productivity and cleaner air and all those kinds of things. So it's not just about the bottom line, I guess, with biomimicry compared to other metrics. And is there, so is there a, you know, you're obviously coming from a lot of um, experience. Is there a product or a eco-friendly design practice that you think is being greenwashed or being labeled as being really green, but like might not really be doing the environment a whole lot of favors. <laughs> My goodness, how long do we have? No, kind of as a like a, a general comment on that. A lot of times, I mean, we humans are definitely getting better at it, but overall, a lot of times we're just looking at one aspect of a design or a product in terms of sustainability as opposed to its life cycle of how are the materials harvested or mined and how is that affecting the, the surrounding ecosystem and habitat? And then how is it actually produced? And then what? how is it used? And then what happens to it afterwards? Because 
a lot of times with sustainability efforts, it's really more about how it's being used in that moment. And we are shifting towards more of looking at the life cycle, but you can have the most sustainable product in the world, but if it's using extremely toxic chemicals and child labor, like, is that really sustainable? So it's really kind of, so that's, so yeah, in terms of our sustainability practices, I feel like we need to to look at the bigger picture of things and not just how it performs once it's installed. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really great to know because uh, we very rarely, and I, I know that's something we've touched about a lot in this conversation, is that we often think about what the product is doing for us in the present, but we don't think about how it was made or what's going to happen to it after we don't need it anymore, which again, it's also, it's what you're saying, is that really sustainable then, which I think is where we need to be. We definitely need to be moving towards that in regard to our products and our buildings and, and everything. So thank you for, thank you for um, discussing that. And then as we're kind of thinking about, I, I'm sure everyone saw from the COVID photos when there was like, not sure if that was I think it was somewhat factual mystical thinking, but penguins in the streets or like dolphins swimming in the canals, right? We obviously, how much of that was completely, whether that was mystical or not, our world has definitely changed quite a lot after COVID. And so do you think that biomimicry can offer us lessons or kind of guide us as we look at this rapid, rapidly changing world and how we can make it better? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, and I, I agree. Like, I, I love those articles of reading about like all these, these animals coming out of the woodwork. And we thought they were endangered, but now that there are no humans and they're taking over. But post-COVID world, using biomimicry as a way to kind of approach it, I mean, that reconnect element and also the ethos of just realizing that we're, you know, all connected and that our actions, you know, do affect other organisms and and habitats of the, the dolphins and all the other sea creatures because there was no like shipping going on like they you know came out to you know do what they were doing but in a more like fine-tuned like as opposed to the, like a bigger um example like that like specific examples are if we like from the human perspective to look at other organisms and how they deal with infection and how they deal with pandemics and all that so i mean I really do love social insects just from lots of, for lots of reasons. So not only for bees doing their waggle dance in order to vote on where they're going to move their hives next, but leafcutter ants actually cultivate a certain bacteria on their bodies that helps kill off parasites that they would then be bringing into their colony. And those parasites would actually be eating the fungus that they eat. So leafcutter ants, like the, it's those really fun ones that you see like that are in a line carrying all the leaves and that the leaves are not actually for them. It's for this fungus that they're farming. But if they're carrying all these leaves and they have kind of this whole compost system, there's all the, these like parasites that are in there. So the fact that ant colonies have figured out a way to create kind of their own antibiotics and they spread it on their own bodies onto you know, their colony mates, maybe we can learn from that because they're all on top of each other just kind of like humans are. So looking to that, I mean, there's also a product that's already out there of Sharklet where it's a film that helps stop biofouling where because looking at a shark's skin and it's like very, very rough texture on an anoscopic scale, it doesn't allow for bacteria colonies to grow. And it's a film that can be applied 
you know, to anything, and especially in healthcare and in education, it's a game changer because you don't need to use the harsh chemicals. You don't need to be constantly bleaching. You're not going to create these like, you know, super viruses and all super bacteria and all that kind of stuff. So if I'm remembering correctly, I do believe that the, the Sharklet technology also can help cut down on the growth of the COVID-19 bacteria as well. So virus rather, sorry. So yeah, I mean, like, it, again, it's all about reframing the question and that nature is, there's a very high probability that nature's already solved this challenge. Mm-hmm. So it, again, it's just thinking about it differently and then asking for help by, for other organisms. And, you know, we've, Cynthia, in our conversation, we've really just like scratched the surface of biomimicry and how exciting it is and how it can, you know, really, really benefit our buildings and our products. So we have listeners that are listening from all around the country, and I know that they're going to be interested in finding out how they could, you know, potentially get involved with your organization or how they could start incorporating biomimicry into their work. What resources do you recommend that people can use? Yeah. So kind of a shameless plug, like definitely follow us on social media, our Instagram and Facebook um, accounts. We post once a day and it's like really like interesting information. Like on Sundays, we do weird and unusual species. So it's just kind of like showing you kind of showing viewers what's out there. But then we also talk about biomimicry research that's being done all around the world. In addition to what BDA is doing, we also have a newsletter that you can sign up for in our webs on our website. So our website is biomimicrydesignalliance.org. In terms of tools that are out there right now, the Biomimicry Institute out of Montana has a fabulous website called asknature.org. And in it, I believe there's over um, 1,700 entries that are all based on function. So it's not necessarily about the built environment, even though that is included, but it's just all these different organisms organized by function and kind of is a great starting point in terms of practicing biomimicry. In terms of architectural resources, Michael Pollan has a book called Biomimicry and Architecture, and that one's really great as well, if one is looking to read. (laughs) So so I want to thank you so much again joining us on the podcast today. It was really just such an exciting topic and it was so great to speak with an expert in the subject. And so definitely if anyone listening to the podcast wants to become involved, uh, please look up Biomimicry Design Alliance. And also for more great content such as this, you can also check out the Softcast podcast. But again, Cynthia, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much.